Welcome to At Altitude. When heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson was asked by a reporter whether he was worried about his opponent's fight plan, he said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Likewise, military planners will remind you that no matter how good their plan may be, the enemy still gets to punch back. The physical environment will throw a hook. The weather can deliver an uppercut. The key to successful execution is to anticipate the challenges presented by the operational environment and your adversary, and build into your plan the ability to pivot, bob, weave, and then counterpunch, allowing you to turn your weaknesses into opportunities. Another heavyweight boxer, Muhammad Ali, did this when he faced the hard-punching George Foreman in their famous Rumble in the Jungle heavyweight championship fight in 1974. Foreman was only 25 years old and had 37 knockouts in his 40-0 record. Ali, who was Foreman's senior by seven years, knew he could not outpunch the younger and stronger fighter. He also knew the stifling heat in Kinshasa Zaire would make it difficult to go the distance in a 15-round match. Yet Ali turned those disadvantages into an opportunity. He chose to cover up and lay back against the ropes for multiple rounds and let Foreman, who was looking for another quick knockout, pound away on him. In the sweltering heat, the younger, more aggressive fighter soon punched himself to exhaustion. Then in the eighth round, Ali came off the ropes with every ounce of his conserved energy and knocked Foreman out. Ali's rope-a-dope tactic became the stuff of legends. The Air Force took quite a punch in the fall of 2018, when the eyewall of a Category 5 storm, Hurricane Michael, slammed into Tyndall Air Force Base. The base took a pounding. Of the nearly 500 facilities on the base, 300 would need to be completely demolished. But throwing in the towel was not an option at Tyndall. Its geographic location on the Florida Panhandle near Panama City allows for direct access to airspace over the Gulf of Mexico, making it a key training and test facility for the U.S. military and its partners. While flight operations quickly resumed in the days following the storm, providing a testimony to the professionalism and resiliency of today's airmen, the coming years may well end up being a powerful testimony to the impact of Air Force leadership's prioritizing of innovation, commercial partnerships, and agile acquisitions. By utilizing these tools, the Air Force is turning the challenge of recovering from a natural disaster into an opportunity to get off the ropes and rebuild Tyndall as a digitally interconnected base of the future. In September of 2019, nearing the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Michael, Airmen sat down for an interview with Brigadier General Patrice A. Melanson, Tyndall Air Force Base Reconstruction Program Management Office Executive Director. She is leading the team that will utilize nearly $3 billion to construct a 21st century Air Force Base capable of supporting three squadrons of F-35s and a squadron of MQ-9s. So let's take a listen as we discuss with General Melanson the fight plan for funding and building the base of the future while still supporting daily missions. I'm Joe Eddins, and you are at Altitude. So, I was gonna ask you, you were a couple of minutes late at the beach this morning? It's not like you don't have anything to do. Uh, you know, no, I was actually out, yeah, I, I went golfing this morning and uh, and had had my coffee out on the veranda. Uh, yeah, no, a little bit busy. Yeah, so 
one year ago today. What were you up to before any of this happened? So I actually have been since January of 2016, I have been working for the San Antonio River Authority in San Antonio, Texas as the engineering department manager. Um, that, you know, is a busy job in and of itself, uh, looking at flooding issues, water quality issues. Uh, but yes, I was uh, working full time with the San Antonio River Authority. And so when did this call come in? So I was approached uh, kind of middle of November timeframe uh, and asked if I would consider taking this on. Um, you know, really had to do some thinking about, um, you know, what, what my departure would mean to the River Authority. Uh, I really enjoyed the job. I had a great team. Um, and I knew if I took this on that it was going to be very intense, uh, really compressed schedule, and I was going to be traveling a lot. So had to think about that. But ultimately, um, you know, I felt like this is, this is what I needed to be doing. Um, to, you know, to support the Air Force. Um, and, and I mean, heck, it's exciting. Uh, when else does somebody almost get to start from scratch with a, with a base uh, in terms of designing and building it? So uh, really opportunity uh, that comes along really once in a lifetime. And that's kind of the road I wanted to go down with you. I mean, it was a tragedy. Absolutely But there was a was. lot of old infrastructure, a lot of uh, fragmenting of units across different buildings. Yes. We're going to do probably by the time it's all over around 75% of the buildings just on the flight line are going to be redone. So, so something like that. Yeah, we actually uh, there's a un, just under 500 facilities sort of total on the base. Um, and at the end of the day, probably 300 of them 300 of them are going to get demoed. Uh, and we'll be replacing them with 100 to 125 uh, facilities in the rebuild. So we're, we're looking at consolidation um, and, and trying to reduce the overall footprint of the base. Um, as you know, uh, I, the base was built in, what, the 40s maybe? Um, and, you know, typically you get, you know, one or two Milcon projects every few years. And so, you know, it ends up being hodgepodged. Um, but we're really looking at a complete, uh, we went through a full master planning process um, and really looked at right-sizing and right-siting facilities. We had some functions that, for whatever reason, uh, that were not necessarily inherently operational or flying-related uh, that were on the flight line side of the base. We're moving those over to the support side of the base and really preserving the flight line space for inherently flying activities. And so maybe if you could just, just run me through the prioritization, how all of that took place to figure out how we're going to change. Because, I mean, you've basically got a blank sheet of paper. Right. And depending, of course, I guess on funding, this is an opportunity to actually take the base of the future off the drawing board and really make one. Um, yes, yes. So, um, so we kind of started out, um, you know, it's interesting. Initially, people thought, oh, you know, 95% of the base was destroyed. Well, not 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 really that bad. Um, we did have a number of facilities that did effectively have kind of minimal damage. Uh, so we really looked at, you know, what buildings those were, where were they located, what were the functions in them, uh, and then as we went through the master planning process, thought about, okay, what do we want to do in terms of those facilities that we can preserve and repair? Do we keep them with the same 
operation and function, or do we put a different function in there? Um, so really tried to look at that. Um, we're bringing the F-35s here. Uh, three squadrons is what the Secretary of the Air Force uh, indicated, and that, that is what we're moving towards. Uh, the first aircraft is supposed to be here the 1st of October 2023. Uh, so there are some minimal, um, minimal facilities that we've got to have in place. Uh, on the operational side, we've got to have uh, 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 hangar, maintenance facilities, squad ops facilities. Um, we're going to ultimately have, you know, that times three, but we certainly don't have to build all three of them at the same time. So we phase that out. Uh, but then we do have to have some level of support facilities. Uh, you've got people that are coming here. Uh, typically, you bring your family with you. So we've got to be thinking about, um, you know, where are they going to be housed? What kind of, um, you know, child development centers, those sorts of things. Um, so we really had to, uh, to think about what needed to be done when in terms of the funding. And seeing as how you just mentioned funding, let's talk about that. Uh, you just got a billion dollar supplemental, but that's not all coming to Tyndall. That's being divvied up amongst a number of projects. Correct. So Tyndall is getting, of the, of the FY19 supplemental, we're going to get about $550 million, uh, for military construction. Some of that is going to be for planning and design. Um, and, and I guess, so let me, let me back up a little bit and talk about, as we started looking at, so we went through the master plan and decided what all needed to be done. Um, as we went through and specifically developed kind of line item projects, we had about 40, 40-ish projects. Um, initially, the thought was we need to ask for all the funding all at the same time. Kind Good of luck the, with that. Yeah, kind of the, well, the, the thought was you're going to get one bite at the apple. So we went all in, we coordinated with the Corps of Engineers, talked with their senior leadership. Um, you know, can, can you guys execute? To, you know, $3 billion worth of military construction. Not, not an easy task, but, you know, doable with some really focused effort. Um, so our initial approach was we're going to get all the funding at once, and that, for me, meant that we were going to be doing 42 different projects at once. Having 42 different projects with 42 different primes happening in the same space, and, oh, by the way, we're going to still be flying, that is a recipe for disaster. Based on that, we worked with the Corps of Engineers and broke up the construction plan into basically 12 zones. Uh, they are geographically and functionally oriented. Uh, that way you've got, in effect, 12 prime contractors. Now, in my ideal world, we'd have done one zone. Let one contract for the whole enchilada. There's a lot of reasons that that's maybe not the best, uh, the best approach. And so, so well, first of all, uh, you know, I'm not sure that you could find one prime that could, that could effectively execute all that. Um, and, you know, even though that prime is going to be, uh, is going to have small businesses as subcontractors, um, we still have to really look at allowing those small businesses an opportunity to participate. Um, and, you know, really have, having one, one entity doing all that there's inherently some risk in sort of placing all of your eggs in one basket. So ultimately, we decided that looking at 12 different zones was reasonable and, and made sense. Uh, one of those zones is uh, across the entire uh, facility for the infrastructure backbone. 
So, so that's how we kind of approach this uh, in terms of zones. So when you say the infrastructure backbone, exactly what are we talking so about? So utilities, so um, water, sewer, gas, electric. Um, we all, the, have, all the not sexy stuff that people are not Correct. All the under, underground yeah. stuff that nobody pays attention to and just assumes that when you turn the faucet on, water's going to come out. That when you flip a switch on, the lights are going to come on. Um, we have an interesting... Um, Wrinkle maybe is not the right word, but we have an interesting situation where our utilities were already privatized prior to the storm. So the Air Force doesn't actually own those physical assets anymore. Um, so we are having to work very closely. Um, our Air Force Civil Engineer Center um, utilities privatization branch, um, they work directly with Defense Logistics Agency on that contractual agreement we have with those, with those privatized system owners. So we're having to work very closely with the Air Force Civil Engineer Center, as well as those system owners in discussions about energy resiliency. What does that look like for Tyndall? Uh, we have already started discussions uh, with those folks. Um, Air, uh, the AFWorks, I don't know if you're familiar with AFWorks. Um, so AFWorks uh, has been engaged with our team. Uh, they hosted uh, kind of a brainstorming session back at the end of June. Uh, one of those uh, system owners participated in in that session, but we continue to partner with with them uh, in looking at, you know, what what makes sense. Uh, in addition, we have just this week uh, we have uh, folks from the uh, Secretariat uh, from IE Installation and Energy and Environment uh, that are here looking at uh, conducting an expedited mission threat analysis that will then lead into an installation energy plan. Um, typically, that is an 18-month to two-year process. Clearly, we don't have that kind of time here. Um, we've got to uh, be able to understand fundamentally the path we're going to go down in terms of what we're going to do for energy resiliency uh, in, in really kind of the next six months. We need to be making those kinds of decisions. So uh, they were here a couple of weeks ago doing some initial uh, data collection, uh, interviewing mission owners, uh, and they'll continue and do kind of an expedited mission threat analysis that will help us to identify what those right solutions are for energy resiliency. So we were speaking about the F-35 bed down that's scheduled to occur in the next few years. Um, and as far as the technology that is currently available, as far as looking over the horizon, um, you know, we're, we're trying to build an Air Force that is going to be decades long Yes. Um, so how do we make those kind of facilities so that they're agile enough that if in 2025 somebody says, wait a second, we need to redeploy, we need to do something different? Right. So, uh, so I'll, I'll go down a couple different threads. So first of all, we're looking to uh, build in technology and techniques that are, that are in the commercial space already, that are being used actively in the commercial space. Um, I'm sure, as you know, the military tends to be pretty conservative in its risk profile, and we're not real, uh, real we're, we're relatively risk averse. Um, we are looking, again, through AFWorks to try to partner with some of these smaller businesses. Um, AFWorks has received support from senior levels in the, in the Air Force uh, to have for their next, um, their next challenge, the topic is going to be base of the future. Uh, just this past year, they did multi-domain operations. Um, so they're, they're going to put that 
face of the future out as the topic for their next challenge. Uh, but we're looking to try to use technology that's currently out there. Um, nowadays, when you buy an air conditioning system, it's already got sensors built into it. Right now, we're not really using any of that data. So we're looking to be able to take a lot of our mechanical electrical equipment uh, and start actually collecting and doing something with the data that's already being produced um, so that we can be much more proactive uh, in maintenance. Uh, for instance, you might have a motor on a chiller and that motor's got a certain vibrational frequency and there are sensors that can tell you, hey, that motor has got something going on with it. And you can send a technician out there to look at it and, and you know, in fact, in some cases, as I understand, uh, that vibrational frequency change will indicate, hey, this is probably a bearing issue. So you can send a technician out there and do some maintenance so that you are reducing the cost of operating and maintaining that equipment as well as extending the life of that particular asset. In the past, we didn't have access to that data and effectively you wouldn't know something was wrong until you had almost a complete failure of the system and then you had to go replace the whole thing at a much higher cost. Uh, so we're looking at those kinds of things. We're also looking at um, putting occupancy sensors uh, into our facilities, not just uh, you know, nowadays you've got the light, light controlled to where when you walk in the room, the lights come on. When, if there's no activity, the lights go off. Uh, there are sensors out there that will let you look at occupancy load so that uh, there can be uh, effectively artificial intelligence built into the system that will tell you, hey, you've got a lot more people over in, you know, let's say an auditorium. And so it will sense that and automatically adjust airflow for the heating and cooling of the facility. So we're looking at that sort of thing. So um, this is all about building in energy and comfort efficiencies. Uh, and, and then also, I guess, you know, we were talking to Asaph Henderson about this also, and I think we're going to go take a look at it. Hangar 5 is an absolute, it's kind of like the poster child for this kind of thinking. Have we been able to do the recapitalization on that earlier? Now you're going to be building new hangars. Well, they have sensors that are going to be able to tell you before there's all this tangential damage done by a failure that, hey, now it's time to fix that. Is that something that's on the horizon? That, yes, that, that, kind of, that kind of technology we're looking to build into all of our facilities, um, not just our administrative facilities. Um, you, know, you mentioned the hangar space. Um, the F-35 has an, uh, the ALIS, ALIS uh, autonomic logistics information system. Uh, that system allows the plane to effectively talk to the crew on the ground to say, hey, by the way, um, when I land, I'm going to need you to check out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a flyer and I don't know the aircraft parts, but uh, you know, maybe the, the hydraulics for the landing gear, there seems to be something that's, that's off with that. Um, and that it'll send a signal back before it even lands, that technician can go be prepared to address that right away. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, maybe is not gonna be immediate after the rebuild, but you know, some places are already using uh, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, I foresee having a technician on the, on the flight line 
with an iPad or a tablet and that aircraft has sent back a signal, hey, I've got this issue, and the technician hits a couple of buttons and that sends a signal to the warehouse and, uh, you know, kind of like Amazon with their little robots that, you know, bring parts to a spot and then you stick it on a drone or you stick it on an autonomous vehicle and it goes out and it meets the technician at the flight line. So really looking at, um, you know, what might be possible um, in the future. And that's, um, that's predictive maintenance for the aircraft, but absolutely. you can absolutely have that for the facilities too, that the CEs absolutely. Yes, these. yes, that, uh, you know, if there is a pressure drop, uh, let's say in a water line at a particular spot, uh, that will automatically send, uh, send a signal to the computer system that will pop up on you know, somebody's desk to say, hey, there is a, there's a drop in pressure at the water line between building A and building B. And that will either send a signal to somebody's cell phone in the form of a text message. Uh, I, I guess nobody really uses pagers anymore. Um, but, you know, or, or it'll automatically generate a work order to say, hey, somebody's got to go look at this. And that can then be farmed out to the right person. To that point, you talked about this. I've talked to the guys at SBIR, and they're trying to work up a base of the future pitch day. Right. Is that something that is Tyndall's going to be the poster child for this? It's like, hey, start giving us your best ideas. Maybe uh, talk about that and a that, little bit. And that rolls in with, uh, you know, AFWorks has gotten approval for, for base of the future as their, the topic for the next challenge day and those next pitch days. In fact, if, if memory serves me right, I believe that they are looking to do a pitch day in November. Um, and it's, it's going to be installation of the future. So really trying to, uh, to utilize the SIBRS program uh, to get those smaller, non-traditional, but very technologically advanced, um, outside-of-the-box thinking um, companies interested in doing something with, with the military and with the Air Force. And, and we certainly, uh, our intent is to look uh, and apply and welcome as many of those ideas in uh, that, that make sense for us. Um, that certainly helps with your timeline, too. We were at the Air Force Pitch Day in New York, and we have one of the people that gave a presentation there said, I got a contract faster than I got right. a beer in the bar. Right, right. It's interesting, and, and you know, certainly I don't want to disparage any of the contracting brethren out there, uh, but over time, our contracting... Uh, processes have gotten more and more cumbersome. Um, and, and I do know that the senior leadership in contracting is looking to be as agile as we can in that regard. Uh, and, and in fact, we have uh, an active duty uh, contracting officer that's here for the next four months uh, working with us to get very familiar with the program and what's happening. And, sh and uh, she will actually get trained as an agreements officer so that if we do have an opportunity for another transactional authority uh, one of those alternate procurement methods, uh, she will be prepared and will be familiar with, with Tyndall and with the program to be able to support us kind of as reach back uh, to facilitate those kinds of procurement activities. You've, you've got a friend, at least in General Holt, we talked to him up there and he talking about the top cover he has from the chief Good. of staff. Good. And he said, they opened the window. I've been waiting for this my entire career. They opened the window and I'm going to drive a truck through it. Right, right. And Dr. Roper, who's the acquisition lead, um, he is definitely on board with this also. Um, so we've, we've got support at the highest levels. Um, now it's really to get, uh, get those folks that are kind of at the action level 
uh, to be comfortable because because frankly, as I mentioned earlier, we tend to be a very risk averse population. Um, and that's not inherently a bad thing, but we need to learn how to get comfortable with pushing the envelope and thinking outside the box because this is not this is not your typical re this is not your typical military construction. This is not your typical day-to-day -day maintenance of a base. We've really got to think fundamentally differently about our approach and really be willing to take on some risk. Uh, clearly, we don't need to be reckless, and I don't want us to be reckless, but we've got to think a little bit differently about this. And so this is the thing that we kind of battle with the traditional acquisition system is justifying and get, getting people to understand that if we quickly institute a certain allotment on the front end, a certain capital expenditure, yes. it is going to save us in potential damage and cost later. It's, it's going to pay dividends in terms of, you know, really, as I mentioned, doing, being able, having the ability to have data that allows you to proactively uh, address either recurring maintenance problems or some repair issues. Um, you know, right now, for instance, with your car, you know, you're supposed to change the oil every 5,000 miles or every six months. Um, you know, different vehicles probably have different wear and tear. Different driving patterns have different wear and tear. This, this would allow the ability to be able to say, I'm going to do maintenance when it's needed, not just because it's at the six-month point. So really allows us to better spend our money at the right time on the right things. So if you, if you were being called up to the Hill to testify about this, is, is that how you would try and explain it to folks? Is that uh, this, so. is, this is in your everyday life and this is how it benefits you. It keeps your engine right. from blowing up. Exactly, exactly. And again, it allows us to really spend the dollars at the right time in the most cost-effective manner. If we can do that, low-cost predictive maintenance at the right time, that reduces the overall cost in terms of life cycle and also will ultimately extend the life of our assets. It'll let us have them usable for a longer period of time. So let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, industry Day. Let's pretend I have no idea what it is and what it's about and what it is you're hoping to accomplish with these. Uh, our Industry Days have been largely about really kind of letting us do some market research. Um, it also is about partnering with not only industry, but also the community. We have community leaders that also participate in our industry days. Um, after our first industry day, which was at the end of January, uh, we did issue a call for white papers, um, kind of on a variety of topics from uh, technology to program management um, to climate resiliency. Uh, we, we kept it fairly open-ended. We got about 100 papers and had about 132 different topics that we got. Uh, about half of those were already uh, actively implementing or looking to implement. Uh, about 20% of them were really not good fits for a variety of reasons, and then about 30% of them were doing a little bit more uh, analysis to look at the uh, risk-benefit we're having to do billions of dollars of construction. Uh, downtown is also in the midst of having to rebuild. Um, and trying to find 3,000 craft workers to, to participate, to swing hammers. Um, once you find them, how do you house them and feed them? 
How do you get them from where they're living onto the base? Um, how do you find enough construction material? Um, so those are all things that uh, we really want to partner not only with the community, but also with industry to talk about things like, you know, maybe running everything by 18-wheeler over the DuPont Bridge is not necessarily the right answer. Is there a way that we can use the rail system or the port, the port authority and use our waterways to, to transport materials uh, to, to job sites? Uh, we're going to have discussions. You know, we talked about the, the 12 construction zones. Um, with the funding that we received, uh, we're not going to be doing all 12 at one time, which, which is in ways a blessing. Uh, that's a little bit less complexity and, and congestion, but it's still a lot of construction happening at the same time. Also allows you to gather a little data along the way and say, hey, this worked. Maybe that didn't work so well. Correct. Correct. We will be able to, as we go, apply some lessons learned uh, as we move forward. Uh, I mean, this is really largely uncharted territory. You know, when, when have we ever, I think the last new base construction was back in the 80s when they built Schriever uh, in the Colorado Springs area. Um, so, so really kind of uncharted territory. Um, so certainly we will be looking uh, as we go through this, the first construction to, to pay attention to some lessons learned that we can maybe apply uh, as we go along. Can I, can I ask you just on the acquisition side as far as getting these people contracted? I realize these are large-scale projects and hardware, but there's also software involved. Um, is this an opportunity to start exploring some new acquisition avenues, DevOps, uh, you know, with softwares and being able to get a minimum viable product that is able to be augmented, iterated upon? So, so certainly that's kind of where AppWorks has come into play. Um, they... I, I do have approval from senior leadership to, to use Tyndall as something of a development or prototype platform. Um, so, again, as we work with AFWorks, um, this is going to be a place where we can uh, take, uh, and, and I'll, talk, uh, I'll talk specifically to uh, the facility-related control structure. So the things that are things like uh, electricity and lighting and uh, HVAC. Uh, there is, uh, there are some tests that have already gone on in terms of how do you collect some of that data. Uh, clearly, cybersecurity is a concern that everybody has with all of this. Um, so there is a, uh, a and and I'm probably not going to get the words right because I'm not a software or an IT kind of a person. But as I understand it, uh, we don't have that network really riding on the base Air Force network. We have it separated, again, for cybersecurity purposes. Um, so we're going to look to uh, deploy that on the, that, that uh, civil engineering facility-related control systems. Uh, we're going to look to deploy that here. Um, and frankly, uh, it, it's, it's opportunistic in that it is Tyndall that we're doing this. Uh, the Air Force's uh, civil engineering uh, subject matter experts, a lot of them reside here at Tyndall with uh, the Air Force Civil Engineer Center. And so they will be right here on the ground and able to, to really do some hands-on uh, with that. So assuming that this $1 billion supplemental is the beginning and that further budgets are predictable, what's our timeline? What are we looking to accomplish 
So right now, we really, we've got to be ready to accept that first aircraft in one, on, on 1 October 2023. So as I mentioned, that's going to be kind of that initial um, squad ops and maintenance and hangar space that we've got to have ready. Uh, that ALIS, the a- Autonomic Logistics Information System, has a 10-month lead time. So back up 10 months from that to have that prepped. So that, that's, the, that's the real line in the sand that we're working towards right now. My prediction, um, you know, we're still trying to get a full integrated master schedule that looks at everything from, I mean, we've, we've got to do a programmatic um, uh, environmental impact statement for those new missions that are coming. Um, so looking at that and then the design and then the construction and commissioning, um, we, we have yet to get a full schedule for all of those pieces. Uh, my guesstimate right now is that it's going to be seven years. Some folks have said 10. Um, maybe I'm being a little bit optimistic, but, uh, but I think it's going to be about, about seven years. But, but that October 2023 deadline, I mean, we've got, we've, got to, we've got to meet that. You were saying the tender was built in the 40s. Offit started off as a cavalry outpost in the 1800s. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of bases and a lot of facilities across the Air Force that are in dire need of upgrade, replacement, advancement to new technologies. Do you see Tyndall as, as being, you mentioned it being the test bed. Are these technologies that you're hoping to integrate here something that can be replicatable across the force? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll mention quickly, uh, January of this year, the Secretary and the Chief signed out the Installation Investment Strategy, the I2S as we call it. Uh, and that really talks about um, really more long-term uh, O&M uh, facility sustainment restoration and modernization funding and to have some minimum, minimum viable funding uh, to be able to really keep our installations running appropriately. Uh, the technology that I spoke of earlier with being able to do predictive maintenance, I think it's going to help uh, make those minimum viable dollars stretch further. Um, we really, our intent is to build a 21st century digitally integrated installation, um, really one that can be a model for other bases uh, as they move forward. Now, clearly, I'm not going to pray for other bases to get wholesale schwacked uh, as, as Hurricane Michael did here at Tyndall, uh, but certainly as bases look at recapitalization, as they look at new construction, um, we hope that they will look to Tyndall and look at what we've done here uh, to, to follow suit. And in the, in the DevOps uh, kind of perspective on these things, better to make your mistakes at the beginning than to make them at the end, and this is information that you can pass on. Right, right. So, so clearly as we move forward and start to implement some of these ideas, um, it, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, I think we'd be... Uh, we'd be remiss if we were that optimistic that we're not going to have some some hiccups or some missteps. Uh, but certainly, this will allow us to do some um, some prototyping to see what works, to see what doesn't work, uh, and then look at if it didn't really work exactly like we wanted it to work. Why didn't it work like we wanted it to work, and what do we need to do to make it work as we want it to work? And hopefully, built in is the ability to iterate as you go. Right. Right. Um, and, and again, we've got uh, the, uh, the comm folks 
are a big partner for us. Um, ACC already is, has uh, put in place uh, some activities that will allow us to do some initial remediation to get the comm infrastructure up and running, but then there's going to be a modernization effort also that they have, uh, they're working with my team to make sure that we build in the requirements that we need to be able to do all of this kind of big data collection, big data analytics um, that's going to support the F-35 and the A-list system. So we're, we're really teaming with them to make sure that we've got the requirements right. Let's talk about, we've been talking a lot about the technology and the facilities and all that kind of stuff. What about the airmen and their families? Let's talk about how possibly things may be restructured to make this a more airman friendly and efficient base? So uh, certainly in terms of kind of administrative tasks that the airmen might have to do to, I don't know, file a leave slip or, or check something with their, with their record, uh, we're really looking, as I mentioned earlier, kind of multi-purpose. Um, and particularly for the administrative uh, functions, we're hoping to kind of allow for one-stop shopping uh, for the airmen so that they can quickly, maybe on a lunch break or at the end of the day, go quickly take care of a number of things in one spot. Uh, in addition, uh, there's already been discussions with the community. Uh, they're looking to put um, a branch of the DMV for driver's license. Uh, that will be housed in one of our administrative buildings uh, and I believe also a county tax assessor office. Um, so that again, if they've got to go take care of something like that, there's the ability to do it on base instead of having to drive 30 minutes into town, 30 minutes back. Um, so, so we are looking, uh, looking at that. Um, and, and ASAP Henderson was talking to us about the fact that we're looking to make it more walkable, bicyclable. Yes. yes. Like the old school Army Air Corps bases. Right, right, uh, right. So, so on the support side of the base, uh, near where the current fitness, fitness center and the dining facility, uh, those actually both survived quite well uh, from the hurricane. Uh, there are a couple of the dorms that also survived quite well, I believe. Three of the 11 dorms were effectively unscathed, um, but we're looking to really focus at that location uh, to allow airmen to get up, walk from their dorm to the fitness center, get their workout in, their PT in, go back and get cleaned up, walk to the dining facility, uh, and then walk or bike over to their workspace. Now, I'm going to give a shout out to the Florida Department of Transportation. They are already, uh, in fact, I think Next month, they're going to break ground on uh, a renovation project for Highway 98, which right now divides the base north and south. Uh, as I understand it, they're going to be elevating that so that we will be able to join the north and south sides of the base at a couple of spots. So that is going to allow them to walk or bike um, directly over to the flight line side. So essentially, you'll have an underpass where it'll go yes. under the highway. Let's, let's talk about the, the dance the cooperative dance you need to do with the Wing King here. Uh, Absolutely. Tell me about the relationship you have there and how that's progressed. And So uh, Colonel Laidlaw and I have got a great relationship. Um, he has had a great relationship with, uh, we've had 06s. Uh, initially, Colonel Pat Miller came in, followed by Colonel Scott Matthews. Uh, though They were both active duty folks. Uh, we rolled in uh, two reservists. Colonel Brent Hyden was here for about four months. Uh, currently, we have Colonel Lori Walden here. Uh, she'll be leaving at the end of the month, and we do have uh, full-time active duty 06 uh, who just PCS'd in. Uh, Colonel Travis Layton uh, will be transitioning uh, starting now, but 
Uh, we have had and will continue to have a very close relationship uh, with the wing commander. Clearly, this is his installation, uh, and my attitude has always been that, um, yes, I am here and I am responsible for the rebuild, but I am working for him. I'm working to help him get the base back up and running, um, and, and I'm here to enable that to happen. So it really is uh, very much uh, a hand-in-hand kind of situation um, where I try to keep him uh, as up to speed as I can uh, and the, the PMO director, I'm serving as the executive director of the PMO, we have a director here, the 06, um, they're talking really almost daily. And every time that I'm here in, uh, in Florida at Tyndall, um, I am, I'm reaching out to Colonel Laidlaw to just make sure that we sync up and that we both know what the other one's doing so that we can help each other out. It really is uh, a balancing act that you have to do between making sure that the current mission is supported yes. and also looking forward to supporting what this base may be in 20 years. Right, right. And really, Colonel Laidlaw, uh, his, his priority really is the current mission. Uh, my priority really is the future. Uh, but, but we absolutely have got to be sure that we don't end up getting crosswise uh, with each other as we move forward. And we've already kind of seen that with uh, the fact that, for instance, Hangar 4, where the low observable paint shop was, it's a hangar that I've been told is eventually going to be demoed and replaced, yes. but you got to make it work now. Correct. And so we have taken uh, that opportunity. We've done, uh, so initially, uh, I mentioned we talked about that initial assessment of, you know, green, it's got some minimal repairs, yellow, a little bit iffy, red, yeah, it's a pile of rubble. Um, but some of those yellow facilities that we had to go in and um, put some temporary, temporary roofs on them, uh, those roofs are really are temporary. They're, you know, three to five year duration that we expect. Um, so in order to get the mission done, we have had to do some kind of expedient, taking some expedient measures. Uh, there were just under 50 buildings that really had relatively minor damage, but that were critical to some mission operations. Uh, those, we did spend the money to do permanent repairs on them, uh, and those will be around for the duration. But we were very, uh, very specific about which facilities we were gonna do that on or not. It really is a, a, a horrible, it was a horrible, horrible catastrophe, but it is an amazing opportunity. How do Absolutely. you feel about that? I, I'm really excited. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought about when I was initially asked to take this on, um, you know, who else gets to do this? I, I was honored and humbled that my peers in the engineering community in the Air Force um, were confident enough in my, in my abilities that they asked me to do this. Um, but it really is, it's an amazing opportunity and really it's a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity. So I was, I was thrilled to be able to say yes. Great. Thank you so much for your time, General. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of At Altitude. My thanks to General Melanson and all of our airmen who get off the ropes every day and get the mission done. The At Altitude podcast is a production of Airmen Magazine located at Defense Media Activity at Fort Meade, Maryland. Please check out the rest of our content at the Airmen website, airmen.dodlive.mil, or search for us on iTunes, Vimeo, YouTube, Facebook, and Flickr. Thanks for listening. 
Until next time.